Hi, this is Kim Davis, and welcome to a very special edition of DMN's One on One. Very pleased to have as our guest today, Karthik Krishnan, who's global CEO of the Britannica Group. Welcome. Thank you, Kim. Great to be here. Britannica Group comprises most obviously the Encyclopedia Britannica ecosystem and Merriam-Webster and a number of other properties, I believe. Maybe you want to mention some of the other parts of the empire? Sure. I mean, Britannica Group owns Encyclopedia Britannica, Merriam-Webster's, Britannica Knowledge Systems, and Malingo. So, so those are the four major businesses that we have within the portfolio. Okay. And a global business. We were talking just before uh, we started the podcast. You have... Um, you have an office out in Tel Aviv, you have headquarters in Chicago, you have a lot of technology and product development here in New York, so quite spread out. We are. I mean, Britannica is a truly global company. On the institutional front, uh, we reach school students across the world. We have a presence in 100 countries and reach about 150 million students worldwide. On the consumer front, uh, between Britannica and Merriam Webster's put together, we are a top five reference site in the world. Amazing. And one of the things we particularly want to talk about today is digital transformation, which is something now really woven into Britannica's history. But talking of history, let me start with the inevitable. Everyone now has in mind that that long row of bound volumes sitting on the shelf goes back to 1868. In fact, I believe you joined Britannica in the year of its 250th anniversary. And Merriam-Webster's been around since, well, for a good 180 years. So this was all about books and paper for a very long time but actually Britannica was an early leader in getting into electronic publishing. Can you take us a little bit back into history and about what you know of how that happened obviously before your time? I would love to I think uh, yes we are famous for the iconic print sets that have adorned the walls of many people's homes right and has inspired people across the world but if you go back to the first edition of Britannica which I have in front of you which is a replica I'm going to open the front pages of it. Okay. So what you find here is pretty interesting. Imagine 250 years ago, uh, United States had not been formed. Wow. French Revolution had not happened. And uh, there were three guys sitting in the middle of Edinburgh, Scotland, saying that let's curate world's knowledge and disseminate it. If you read the first sentence in our preface, it says utility ought to be the principal intention of every publication. Wherever this intention does not plainly appear, neither the books nor their authors have the smallest claim to the approbation of mankind. They could have written anything, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see the word utility is in all caps and bolded. Yeah. So I think even from 250 years ago, Britannica took a medium agnostic approach. Print was just a, formula, a popular form of distribution of content. Mm -hmm. And that's why Britannica started out with uh, a print-based distribution. Over the years, Britannica also embraced videos. In fact, EBEC was actually an educational television program that Britannica had created. And as I think through our 250 year history, this particular sentence or the paragraph, the first two sentences, holds a lot of meaning for us. The medium in which we operate might change, but the mission has not. Right. It's all about providing utility. If, Kim, in your case, you want to read information on a print-based medium, that's fine. My kids want to engage using an app. Britannica and Merriam Webster's will continue to be a companion, a trusted companion that can serve you whether you're in print, mm -hmm. you're online, or you're speaking using Bluetooth, 
Or 10 years from now, you could have a membrane that's stuck to your skin that's going to give you the information <laughs> that you're looking for. Yeah, I can believe it. And uh, just so everyone knows, we're sitting here looking at this lovely facsimile edition of the original three-volume version of Britannica with the original font, and I will grab a photo of that later. So uh, another early thing Britannica did was uh, put the encyclopedia on CD-ROM, which reinforces what you're saying about being media, media neutral. Um, and what, kind, what kinds of channels does Britannica use today to reach their audience other than the print edition? Sure. So two things I want to highlight here are the fact that Britannica, over its 250-year history, has embraced change, broken boundaries, and exhibited what I call organizational learning agility. When you talk about digital transformation, Britannica was one of the first brands to think about digital publication as early as the 1970s, working with people like Marvin Minsky. Mm -hmm. 1981, Britannica launched the first digital encyclopedia, which is all completely text, and we did this in partnership with LexisNexis. In 1989, Britannica launched the first multimedia CD-ROM encyclopedia. At that, this was actually four or five years before Microsoft Encarta even came into the market. Wow. At that point, the technology was so new, if you look at that particular edition, it was packaged in a nice leather-bound volume right. packaging. It actually would put today's iPhone packaging to shame, right? Yeah. It's how well it's done. When you open one of those boxes, on the left, you would have a brochure explaining how to use the medium. On the right, you would actually have a CD-ROM at the top, and below it was a VHS tape. Because CD-ROM technology was so new that we had to explain to people how to use a CD-ROM. So we used that VHS tapes to give them instructions on how to use a CD-ROM. Yeah. And then the print manual really helped them guide them through the whole process. And then, as you talked about the 250th anniversary, which was December of last year, it also marked Britannica's 25th year online. Mm -hmm. When Mark Andreessen launched the Mosaic web browser, Britannica was one of the first sites to go online on a graphic web browser. And in the late 90s, when uh, Tim... Uh, Bray and all these people started talking about XML standards. Right. They came to the Chicago Britannica offices to learn about how Britannica had organized content. So Britannica actually contributed to the XML standards. So going back, you know, I think for us, it has been an evolution. Uh, Britannica is in a really good position to look at what are the changes sweeping the world? Yes. How is consumer behavior changing? And how do we really adapt our own medium of servicing these people to get good information. Today, Britannica is focusing on three to four key areas. First is search, mm -hmm. which is where most people are, right? That's where they start the journey on the internet. The second is social media. The third one is video. The fourth one is IoT, yes. or Internet of Things. Tomorrow, you and I are gonna, are gonna be speaking to a television. You're gonna yes. be speaking to your refrigerator. So we want to be in a position to ensure that there is well-curated information that's available no matter how you consume that information. So those are the different channels in which uh, Britannica is playing a key role today. And if, if it's helpful, I would also love to walk you through some examples of the things that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So what we realize today is the fact that people pay a higher price on convenience. Mm -hmm. You might have the best information, but if you're not available where people are looking for information, it doesn't matter. How often do you do a search and end up on the second or the third page of a search engine's results page? Never. <laughs> Never, right? Yeah. 
I mean, even though it is so easy to take your mouse and click on page two or page three and get to that information. So in this world, what we felt was Britannica Insights was launched to, it's a free Chrome browser extension. When you have it installed on your computer, whether you're on Google or Yahoo or Bing and you do a search, when Britannica has relevant information to offer, it shows up on the top right, right above the Google Knowledge Panel. Yeah. So here, what we do is, when you do a search on topic like, say, climate change, for example, we not only give people a definition of climate change, our semantic reference database actually gives you a learning framework. We talk about causes, outcomes. Who are the different people you need to follow to understand climate change? Mm -hmm. What are the different theories that you need to understand? Most people understand global warming. Less number of people have heard about global cooling. Most people have never heard about Milankovitch effect or the theory of astronomical cycles. So our goal is not only to provide people an answer, but also give them a bigger context of a learning framework where you don't have to go through 20 different websites to really look up all this information. You basically have an outline to say, here's how I navigate the topic of climate change. So it's informational, it's educational, and it's right at your fingertips. Yes, our promise to you, save time, learn more, be sure. It makes me want to ask a question about another player in this space, Um, Wikipedia. I have some strong views about Wikipedia, not entirely positive. Now the content you're providing is professionally edited, it's vetted, it's it's thoroughly examined before it's put online. Wikipedia's a little bit more like the Wild West. Are they on your radar at all? Do you think of them as a competitor or a di- completely different kind of thing? We are. I think we're all in the knowledge business, right? And I think Wikipedia has done a really outstanding job of actually curating the world's knowledge using crowdsourcing, mm-hmm. which is great. But it also has limitations. The data or information on Wikipedia can be right today, wrong tomorrow, right? There have yes. been a number of cases where people have found warring factions trying to change facts on Wikipedia. So from our perspective, Wikipedia gives you information about if I want to know about the street that I'm living on, mm-hmm. pizza and things like that. But when it comes to building blocks of knowledge, you want to go to brands that are pretty much trusted. Britannica is not the only game in town. We have people like National Geographic that do an outstanding job. Sure. You got the BBC, you got the Guardian, right? So there are times where you go to certain sources because there is paucity of information. Yeah. When there is plethora of information, then you want to focus on where can I get good fact base on which I can build on my hypothesis or my theory. So from our perspective, you know, I think uh, we see them as uh, somebody who adds value in the ecosystem of knowledge. From our perspective, our breadth of data that we provide or information is not only vetted, we support things like video, images, the semantic database that I talked about, which provides you a learning framework, helps people understand how to navigate these topics. We also have things like quizzes. And uh, we right now have a lot of voice-based solutions as well. So there is significant differentiation between Wikipedia and Britannica. Okay. And in this world, it's just nice to know there are oases of trusted, reliable information out there. It is true. I think today, if you look at the internet about 20 years ago or 25 years ago, there was paucity of information. Mm -hmm. Today, you do a search on any topic, right? Uh, Straws. You might get 2 million page views. You and I don't have enough time in our lifetime to go through those 2 million page views. So for us, the world is now switching from volume of information to value of information. And particularly in today's digital universe, trust is the new algorithm. Because 
in most cases, people are not able to believe what's on the internet yes. because there's so much of proactive misinformation. Yes, clearly true. Uh, mentioned um, students, uh, what, uh, what services or products are you offering to the educational community? Britannica has a strong presence in the educational community. As I mentioned before, we are in 100 plus countries with each about 150 million students. And we have a plethora of solutions going all the way from what is called general reference to supplemental to core curriculum. So those are the three buckets in which we operate. From a general reference perspective, our product is called B-School, Britannica Schools, which is the Google for students. Basically, it has a lot of information on topics that you're likely to search as a student. It's uh, well curated. Uh, we have information in three learning levels beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And uh, we are able to scale up and scale down. It also has tools like citation. And if you are from a bilingual family and you want to take that content and uh, read that in Spanish or other languages, we support, we support about 20 plus languages. Right. So these are the differentiations that we have. On the supplemental front, we have launched products like Launch Packs, which focuses on social studies and science. These are supplemental content that ties into your curriculum. In most cases, as you know, textbooks do not evolve and change as fast. Yeah. Our digital solutions tie into topics that you're likely to learn in school, and it also relates them to current day events. And then finally, we also have core learning products. Uh, Britannica is taking an approach to learning that's a little bit different. Today, our hypothesis is that uh, we kill curiosity in the classroom. Right. So from our perspective, what about if you started teaching science in a different way? Assuming, Kim, uh, you and I are going to talk about centripetal force today in the classroom. Britannica's modules will talk about, Kim, when was the last time you were on a roller coaster? <laughs> yes. The next question talks about, why don't you fall off the roller coaster? So we start with these kinds of curious questions. We make you think. Mm -hmm. Then there's a video that explains how potential energy gets converted into kinetic energy and as you go through the loop, if you don't have those tracks, you'll end up being a parabola and shoot out of that frame. So we use different ways for people to understand and appreciate what they're trying to learn, starting with a curious question. In addition to that, we also have voice-based technology that's developed. So if you're on a school bus or waiting for a bus, you can still have your AirPods or anything that you have from Beats onto your, <laughs> on your ears and yeah. start asking questions like, tell me about surface tension. Wow and that information gets relayed to you. What's growing in my mind listening to you is the scale of the content you must be creating because it's not as if you're just doing this very interesting engaging content on one topic, you're trying to do it on just about every topic under the sun. You must have a massive um, content team or, or how, are you, how are you able to do that? From our perspective, uh, I think we have a, a amazing database that's been built over the years and a lot of the fundamentals of knowledge don't change as much. But how do you present them changes. Nice. For example, you and I grew up in a world where we were used to reading text. The next generation or today's generation is much more comfortable with voice and video. So for us, it's actually taking those concepts and then morphing them in a way that it makes sense. So from our perspective, we not only have a talented team of editorial and curriculum development experts on our team, we are also lucky to have experts across the world who want to contribute to Britannica. Yes. For example, in our 250th anniversary, uh, 
even though we don't do print anymore, we created a print set to commemorate the 250th anniversary. The article on the war on democracy is from uh, Secret former Secretary Madeleine Albright. Right. And you have people like Yuval Harari writing on topics that are pertinent. So from our perspective, it's not just people within Britannica. We have an army of people supporting Britannica who are well-known experts in their own space. This is such a prestigious imprint. People want to bring their content to you. It's not only wanting to bring the content, they also feel that Britannica also has the social mission that it takes it on itself to curate the best knowledge and get it out to as many people as possible. Right. And just a question on that. So you mentioned social media. Which social media channels are very strong for you? Where are you getting a lot of engagement? We would say our social channels would include uh, a Facebook for sure. Uh, we get a lot from WhatsApp. And we also are seeing enough traffic coming in from YouTube, which is not truly a social media platform, mm -hmm. but people spend a significant amount of time. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we launched uh, two key products in those markets. One is called Demystified. The second is called What the Fact, which goes after the millennials. <laughs> so from our perspective, Demystified takes popular myths that are out there. Questions like, does listening to music while you're pregnant help the baby? So we actually take all these popular myths or questions that are floating around in social media and have a whole channel of questions and answers to address those things. On the what the fact, you know, I think it just gives you interesting facts about things that people need to learn. Right. From a video point of view, YouTube also partnered with Britannica to fight conspiracy theory on its platform. I see. So we created a format called explainer format. So if you talk about moon landing, we had the 50th anniversary of the moon landing pretty recently, and there are still conspiracy theories <laughs> yes. floating around to say, did we really land on the moon? Yep. So we have a format that says what's known, what's unknown. So this way we are able to provide people an objective view on based on facts, and these are the kinds of things that we're doing to drive presence in social media and enrich the level of conversation that's happening there. Okay, one last topic, because I know you're very interested in cutting edge technology and what's coming in the future seems to me there's an opportunity using predictive analytics and understanding people's behavior to offer them information even before they know they need it. In other words, from what they've been looking at, what they've been reading, you could present them with uh, some new information that they hadn't even thought of asking for. Is that something you've thought about? We have always thought about that as well, right? How do you predict what people need and how do you provide it proactively? The only nuance that we have to that is, right, Technology today is putting people down a rabbit hole because everybody's trying to do that. If, Kim, you like a certain type of information, we give you more of that. Yes. And we would love to take a little bit of a contrarian approach. While we provide you information on that topic, we also want to expand your perspective to provide a broader framework. Good analogy is, my son is into sports, but he loves sugar. I know he loves sugar, right? Doesn't mean that I've got to give him chocolate and candy every <laughs> single day. Yes. So to me, as he's having those enjoyable moments, how do I expand his culinary or taste buds to expand and look beyond just like sugar? And I think that's what we're trying to do when it comes to knowledge. As much as you'd like to give people information based on predicting what they need, we also want to do it in a respectful way yes. where we're not just driving them down a certain rabbit hole. How do we provide them a bigger framework using our semantic algorithms so that you know when you're talking about climate change, you're interested in global warming, 
but I also want to expose you to two or three other concepts that you need to understand, like the Milankovitch effect or the theory of astronomical cycles. So this way, you have a much better understanding of that concept and not just walking away with an answer and starting to build a hypothesis based off of that. So with the algorithms in there and the scale of users you have, you're actually using some form of artificial intelligence to understand what they're doing and where they're going? Yes, adaptive learning. In fact, uh, we launched two new products. One is uh, Guardians of History. Uh, this was an Alexa-based product. It blends science fiction with facts uh, to create an experience where young kids can learn history using voice. So if you launch Guardians of History on Alexa, it'll chrono-catapult you into Greece, <laughs> right? And it's all voice-driven. Yeah. It's a choice-based gameplay, which means you can decide which path you want to go, and you have eight different endings based on the paths that you choose. It's more like uh, there's a program on Netflix now which is pretty popular, You versus Gorillas, or like <laughs> You versus Wild. Right. And I think this is a choice-based, voice-driven AI solution that we launched. And last week, we also launched another solution called Puku, P-U-K-U, mm -hmm. from Merriam-Webster's, which is a gamified vocabulary learning platform. So here, you can actually, uh, Puku is a neo pet, right? It's a virtual pet. Okay. So depending upon your mastery of words, the pet changes, it grows, there are a lot of fun things that happen. But the interesting part about Puku is that you can decide what kinds of word lists that you want to work on. My sixth grade, my daughter can have a sixth grade vocabulary list. If Kim, you're into Harry Potter, you can actually have a Harry Potter list. Uh -huh. So you can actually create customizable lists that you want to add. More importantly, much like sharing music, you can also share word lists with other people. So what we find is that by adding gamification, which is where kids of today want to spend most of their time, and having something like a Neopet that grows and changes and morphs, you're actually creating an excitement way for them to learn. So those are the things that we're doing in terms of enhancing learning experiences by understanding how students of today learn, yeah. whether it's video or voice or gamification, and how do you bring all those things into an ecosystem where learning and having fun can happen at the same time. This is a great lesson because we're sitting next to the, the three volumes which this all started with, and as you say, what that references at the beginning is utility and the mission of bringing knowledge and making it usable and available must be one of the most important missions in the world today. That is true. We look forward to inspiring curiosity and the joy of learning both inside and outside the classrooms. And Britannica aims to be that must have learning buddy that you can trust on no matter where you are. Whether you're on the internet, you're picking up a piece of paper, or you're talking to your refrigerator, we want to be that trusted source that's providing you the best possible information where you are. Karthik, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Kim, thank you for having me on your show.